The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so our plan for the day is that I'm going to talk a little bit about what are the Buddhist teachings on right speech and what are the guidelines that are offered and what is it that it's helpful to spend this time raising up in our awareness so that maybe it occurs to us and we can remember to practice with these factors during this month. And then we'll have a little discussion about that. And then in the second half of the afternoon, Liz will talk more about um, some really working with being present while speaking and what's that like, and we'll have a little exercise with that. So that's the plan for the day. So right speech is defined as follows in the teachings. The Buddha says, and what is right speech? abstaining from false speech, abstaining from divisive speech, abstaining from harsh speech, abstaining from idle chatter. This is called right speech. So, you know, unfortunately, from some people's point of view, he's not telling you what to say (laughs) or how to, you know, work with every situation, but these qualities to bear in mind. So the first of these aspects is to abstain from false speech. And you'll notice that the definition, as so often in the teachings, is given in the negative, to refrain from false speech. So I think this really highlights the the ethical and the relational and the pragmatic aspect of this teaching. And of course, as Liz said, it relates back to the intentions of non-ill will and non-cruelty. And also it's interesting that it's not so much about the truth with a capital T as if any of us could feel that we know what the truth is. But it's first and foremost about not using the act of speaking to carry out intentions to mislead, right? To purposefully deceive or harm or gain some unfair advantage over another person. You know, so we can't always know whether we're speaking the truth, but we can look at our intentions and we can know are our intentions rooted in aiming toward the truth or discovering the truth, or are they intentions to mislead and deceive and gain advantage? I mean, what an amazingly different society you would have right now if uh, if that were on most people's minds in some way. Um, So this practice then becomes a great window back on the last two factors. It's easy to think about intention and view in the abstract, and then really when you find yourself speaking in some way that's unskillful, then you've really got something to look back on and say, whoa, where did this come from? What's going on here? So as we begin to look at this, we might discover a whole range of circumstances that might 
lead us into speaking with less than the ideal of this factor in mind. There might be some outright need for gain or deceit, a perceived need for gain or deceit, you know, being honest at least with yourself about your edge cases. Sometimes in business dealings, sometimes our jobs require us to sell products that, you know, might not be the ideal product for this situation. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of times, sometimes in relationship sharing, we want to manage the truth somehow. So this is a window into a whole view of how we get by in the world and what's our degree of trust of really making not deceiving a, a high priority of ours. There's a lot of things we can learn about what, what we learned from our childhoods or our life so far about how we get along in the world. Then there's the whole area of attachment and identification with views. In this whole world of, you know, fake news and data and opinion overload, how do we discuss the issues of the day in a responsible way? One of my favorite teachings from the suttas is the Buddha's dialogue with a, a, a guy named Chunky, C-A-N-K-I, on the preservation of truth. So he asks, Chunky asks, Master Gotama, in what way is there the preservation of truth? How does one preserve the truth? Faith, approval, oral tradition, reasoned cognition, and reflective exception of a view, all of these things may turn out either way. So you could say something out of faith and then later on find out it's not true. You could say something out of reasoned cognition and then find out it might be true or it might not be. And, you know, you might continue to flip-flop on what you find out for forever. But if a person has faith, for example, then he preserves truth when he says, my faith is thus. You know, you have not yet come to the definite conclusion that only this is true, anything else is wrong. But you say, my faith is thus. Or according to my best reasoning, thus. Or as I read in the New York Times, thus. Or, you know, this is what I heard somebody say that I so far have respect for, and that's why I believe it. And so that's true. You know, that's how you came to have that opinion. And if you express it with that kind of wrapping around it, then this is preserving the truth. It's interesting to me to look in the heat of an argument on some topic that's important to us today, how easy it is to be drawn into exaggeration or generalization, you know, kind of making up facts to uh, support your case as you go along, and, oh, everybody agrees with me, or it's always this way or that way that you find yourself wind up saying so. You know, you're really clamping down in those cases on only this is true, and I don't dare let any data. Do you have a question, or are you just resting your arm? Okay, fine. (laughs) Yeah. So another area to look at is a kind of emotional level of confusion or shame or fear of social consequences from letting out something about ourselves. We all want to be seen in a good light by other people, you know, but how much is it important to you to be seen by others in a way that really isn't true? You know, so can you at least admit to yourself what what you believe is the case here 
and then work work with accepting that within yourself or working on it or something so that you're not in the position of trying to manipulate other people to see you in a way that that you know you may have some doubts on whether that's really true takes a lot of really deep listening to yourself to begin to locate and resolve these inner conflicts of between our ideals and the pressures of reality and our self images and what's really what's really going on so a lot of people have a lot of a lot of inner self doubt and self hatred even and are really relying a lot on other people to sort of prop them up and help them deal with that so you can really look at that takes a lot of courage and it takes finding wise spiritual friends or healers people that you can talk to more honestly about what's going on and try out different things about your life that it may not be so easy to articulate to everybody then the final area where i think most of us have a lot of trouble with this is what you might call social fibbing you know oh yes yes i like that present oh yes you know that's that's a beautiful dress or whatever <laughs> you're being asked to comment on where you just don't want to hurt someone's feelings so that's very interesting to look at that you know um we all have to just figure out what what of our many impulses are we in touch with in that moment we're really sincerely in touch with not wanting to hurt someone's feelings and it really doesn't matter our opinion of whether a particular you know article of clothing looks how you know it might be a sincere thing to say oh you know you look lovely if you're looking at someone's heart they probably do look lovely you know so there are ways to work with that um if you just are in the habit of always saying the pleasant and easy thing to get along with somebody like yes i like that book whether i liked it or not just because somebody else likes it you really what are we doing there we're really reinforcing a kind of distancing and controlling we're perpetuating not really being known and seen for who we are with the people that we do this with and we're kind of revealing our unease with differences in taste and opinion about different things so w- these are all areas to really explore when you find yourself doing this social fibbing there's also not trusting the other person's process the other person also can grow into being able to handle these differences of opinion you know so so uh we can find ways to be kind and courteous that don't have these specific long-term effects of distancing or not trusting the other person or becoming more and more unknown in our relationships so sometimes even motives that might feel like telling the truth telling it like it is letting it all hang out some of these expressions from the 60s they can lead to unskillful communication right it's not always you don't always have to say everything that's on your mind at all so the but in another passage the buddha says a statement endowed with five factors is well spoken and not ill spoken it is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people which five it is spoken at the right time it is spoken in truth it is spoken affectionately it is spoken beneficially and it is spoken with a mind of good will So uh I had I had something else that I read that I found interesting uh, the psychologist was contrasting the pressure that we all feel to conform and to speak in a way that's you know socially acceptable and conforming and agrees with keeps the peace sort of then there's a second way which he calls pouring out and venting 
you know, and just dumping on somebody your your most emotionally charged opinions of the moment about what's going on. And then there's a third way, which is communi- communicating, <laughs> actually talking to someone with the intention of being heard. You know, so what you have really communicated, this guy points out, is what is heard by the other person. And that takes a lot of back and forth. A genuine intention to convey something to another person won't be a one-way blast, but it will require empathy and checking with what's heard and how do, what are, how do these words land with the other person, constantly checking back with your opinion um, to see how it's landing. So this is also quite relevant. Many of you may know of the nonviolent communication teachings. That's a wonderful area to look into if you want some more practical advice on how to communicate in this way. The principles there, which are very similar to the Buddha's teachings to Chunky, actually, are saying, here's what I've observed. That's a truth-preserving statement. These are my feelings. This is what I'm experiencing right now. That's a truth-preserving statement. These are my needs. That can be a truth-preserving statement, maybe subject to deeper understanding. And then making clear requests of what you would like, kind of bracketed with this is, this is what I would like. So those principles are quite in line with what the Buddha taught. So on each of these topics, I want to touch a little on the inner work. I've mentioned that all the way through here. But, and, and as Liz was bringing up, looking at your internal speech, are we honest with ourselves? Because it goes a long way to not needing to put everything out for other people's agreement or approval, if we can find that within ourselves where we can really be honest about how we feel about what's going on with us and learn to hear those parts of us that have been not heard over the years with compassion and a real deep listening to what, what is behind these difficulties that we feel. You know, what are the different threads that are in there? What's trying to protect us and defend us against the way something else feels? And what if it's okay to just feel what we feel? And it doesn't mean that that it's the only aspect of the situation or the only way that, or that we have to act it out. So finally then, in this area of truth, you could say, there's this deeper sense of truth in our practice. We have a real devotion to looking at our direct experience and seeing without so many layers of conceptual overlay because a word can never be exactly true. A word is a little cookie cutter put on the flow of experience and there's always the other side, there's always something else, there's always more. So the more we're dedicating ourselves to being with and open to this flow of direct experience through our meditation practice, It's a deeper looking at the truth beneath concepts. So the second factor is not divisive. Here's what the Buddha has to say about that. He abstains from divisive speech. What he has heard here, he does not tell there to break those people apart from these people here. What he has heard there, he does not tell here to break these people apart from those people there. Thus reconciling those who have broken apart or cementing those who are united. He loves concord, delights in concord, enjoys concord, speaks things that create concord. So not speaking in order to divide, but speaking in order to support concord. 
So in a personal context, this is refraining from gossiping, backbiting, putting people down behind their backs, you know, trying to make a little us by talking about some third party that's then become the them in that situation. This human tendency to create sides and then cling to our own side, it really goes to the heart of two of the most profound teachings in Buddhism. First, how we take concepts and ideas and abstractions to be referring to something solid and real and permanent. You know, the obvious these days categories of race and gender and in the Buddha's time and still in India, caste, you know, social class. All the ways that we think we know something about people based on superficial characteristics. And then how these get enlisted in our tendency to seek safety in these various kinds of tribal identifications where we, we, find, we find a group based on one of these abstract qualities and that becomes an us. So the, the Buddhist practices ask us if we can bring awareness to this process where issues are seen mainly in terms of sides and winning and losing. So you can notice any tendencies to exaggerate the facts in support of your side or to generalize from the worst examples of the other side. You know, sometimes we take a very high, most the most uh, high-level view of Buddhism we can think of, the most intellectual, the most somehow, I don't know, whatever appeals to people in this strata of society. And then we contrast that to the more folk religious side of other religions. You know, are we, do we do that sort of thing? Or are we looking at what's really the whole range of experience all over the place when we're comparing things? And notice when we're using speech to further solidify what we're clinging to, to simplify the issue, to shut down nuances, basically to prove our case. I, you can often, I at least often find myself trying to prove something when I'm looking at a situation. I've decided how it is and then my whole line of talking to myself about it and talking to other people about it are in line of kind of lawyerly proving my case here. And can we keep our intentions aimed toward healing and concord? And this involves staying open to seeing the really human details and particulars of every situation. Are we able to let in new information and shift stay open to the shifting potentialities of every situation. So in a smaller personal context, I, I, I really have enjoyed a couple of practices. One is whenever you're speaking about a third party, the, the radical version of this is don't do that. Try for a couple of days noticing every time you're speaking about a third party when you're talking to somebody. And how are you doing that and why are you doing it? It's fascinating. It's hard to, you know, maintain over a long period of time, but it could be really interesting to look at. And a gentler version of that is to try to consider how, how you would feel if they overheard what you were saying. You know, are you speaking about them in a way that you could speak to them or that you could, you know, feel was at least coming from a wholesome place if, if it was overheard. Now, if you're having difficulty with someone, it can be very skillful to find a third 
person, to find a person to speak to about that situation. But there's a whole difference whether you're discussing it from the motive of really understanding, you know, bracketing the conversation, like I need to talk to you about my difficulties with this person and I honestly don't know how to work with this and can you help me work with this? That's very different than trying to make a we versus they situation out of it. One of my favorite stories comes from Michelle McDonald, who's a great teacher in our tradition. And she's telling about somebody, they were in a group of people, and they were starting to kind of put down somebody, you know. A a little office group was starting to pick on somebody as being, you know, pick on worthy in some way. And then this guy who was maintaining silence, he was standing back in the group and hadn't said anything. And after a while, he just said, hmm, I wonder why he does that. You know, this other guy they were talking about. And she said that just kind of brought the, brought the conversation to a halt and made people think about him again as a human being with his own reasons for behaving the way he behaves. You know, so it really shifted. I found that kind of intervention helpful once in a while. Like, gee, you know, I, I, wonder, yeah, I wonder what's really up with them. And then you want to be careful about getting into psychological speculation about what is up with them. But at least you've re introduced the idea that this is a person with their own point of view. So then um, the next category is not harsh or abusive speech. We know what that is. We can look at any comment anywhere on the internet (laughs) these days and understand what is meant by harsh and abusive speech. So what is the tone of our speech? The tone is conveyed in a lot of ways, in sound waves and expressions and gestures and who knows what other, you know, energetic pickup systems we have. Communication arises from the whole body and it's received by the whole body. Words trigger whole body networks of associations. Speech and especially the overtones that contain these intentions, that convey these intentions, it's contagious. So... We do tend toward matching, studies have shown, and our own experience shows, we tend toward matching in tone and in volume, you know, what's going on. We're mindlessly merging into maybe coerced agreement with what the person is saying or escalating mutual resistance and defensiveness. So true communication involves realizing the effect that your speech is having on the other person. When we speak in a harsh or abusive tone, this is probably the entire content of what's heard. You know, once you introduce that tone, nobody's listening to your logic anymore. Nobody's following your logic. And it's just simply a boomerang, an escalating boomerang of defensive reactivity is immediately triggered. The Buddha says, monks do not wage wordy warfare. So, you know, it's so, it's so easy to be triggered into a burst of reactivity in this situation. And uh, speech is probably one of the places that we can most easily see our latent tendency to cruelty, imagine, emerging. You know, most of us are not maybe actually hitting people, but boy, we get in there with the words when things, when we're triggered, and it quickly turns to a little tendency of cruelty there. So we need to see this and maybe really look at this, different kinds of humor. You know, humor easily gets turned into sarcasm, habits of using harsh speech and profanity in the workplace. I I was a computer engineer for 20 years and 
that was the level of vocabulary that was just thrown around all the time. It 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 took me a while to kind of sort that out when I learned <laughs> Dharma practice. So, um, and uh, this psychologist that I referred to earlier points out what a different energy it is, the difference between what it feels like to be on the venting side or the speaking side of harsh and divisive speech. To vent it, it has this gratifying quality of rah, you know, you're getting something off your chest. It's a big energetic rush. And it's got this positive, short-term gratification to it. But to be receiving that, it's a whole different thing, right? It's completely the opposite sense to be receiving that. And I know a lot of you are are involved in the psychological therapy profession. And one of the things you really need to learn is how to take that from people, right? Without taking it personally. How to hear that, how to, how to understand where that's coming from and not be triggered in responding to that, but to hold that skillfully. And we all need to learn that because it's going to be coming at us. And how can we work with both not sending it out and letting it come at us and deflecting it skillfully or receiving it skillfully somehow. So for the inner work in this area, notice how you conduct imaginary fantasy conversation scenarios. Are you usually trying to practice winning the argument? Right? How often do you actually practice staying calm, practice listening deeply as if you wanted to hear something new, practice rehearse learning from the other person, rehearse allowing situations to de-escalate. It's something, I don't know how many people practice that way internally regularly, but it's different than, you know, practicing your zingers and practicing what you would wish you would say to put them down all the time. So you can, you can watch that. And then, of course, the voice of the inner critic. How do we talk to ourselves? A lot of us, there's a lot of fear of not being safe and not being our ideal selves and not being able to stay in control of a situation. And some part of many of our minds is very harsh about harsh taskmaster about taskmaster about how we have to be able to do that. And it talks to us in this tone of, you know, you idiot, you let that little thing get out of control. You didn't you weren't perfect there. So how do you talk to yourself? You know, and where's that coming from? Where did you learn that? And is there a different way to relate to those moments when you're not so perfect? And then as Liz so beautifully led us in the guided meditation, feeling energetically the energy of where your speech is coming from. Harsh speech has a harsh, twisted vocal quality to it. Where are the muscles and the vocal channels that are twisting around creating that tone of voice? And what's lying behind those uses of your body? So the final uh, factor is not idle chatter. So I love this section of topics of speech to be avoided by 2,500-year-old 2500 uh, contemplatives here. <laughs> Talking about kings, robbers, ministers of state, armies, alarms and battles food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands and scents, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, the countryside, women and heroes, the gossip of the street and the well, tales of the dead, 
philosophical discussions of the past and future, the creation of the world and of the sea, and talk of whether things exist or not. So you might think, well, <laughs> what's left to talk about? <laughs> so this applies to contemplatives. You know, monks are not supposed to stand around just gossiping about vehicles and so forth. But we are not mostly contemplatives. And we have this desire to connect with people. And we can't just plunge right into, you know, let me give you a Dharma talk <laughs> as soon as we meet somebody at the water cooler, right? So we just have to stay in touch with when, what is our motive here? Are we just connecting in a friendly kind of way? Um, I, it just occurred to me that the term clickbait, you know, you can look at the internet. How is the internet sucking you in with this kind of stuff all the time? So what we're supposed to focus on is speech that's purposeful and connect. What the monastics are supposed to focus on is speech that's purposeful and connected with the goal, which for them, they have dedicated their lives to the goal of awakening, awakening. And we're beginning to get more serious about that. We're starting to really take this seriously. So, and fortunately, we have a community here of people where we can have a little bit deeper conversation. You know, we can really talk about how's it going with speech. You know, anytime you run into anybody in this group, you've got somebody you can talk about how it's going with something a little more real than, you know, what kind of car did you buy? Not that we don't talk about that. But uh, so can you be socially friendly and still stay aware of your motive? And, the, and as you continue to have a conversation with somebody or if it's somebody that's a regular person in your life, what effect does this have on your energy and what state of mind is being re reinforced? It can be just exhausting staying superficial, right? A whole dinner party devoted to discussing which kind of TV to buy or something is just, it's exhausting. Um, and it reinforces everybody's obsession with trivial pursuits. It may be what we have in common. And it's, it's an interesting skill to look at how to raise some questions, you know, somehow introduce a little something else about how are you feeling about that or something that brings the conversation a little more into the realm of reality. So this kind of idle chatter also very easily slides into the realm of opinions and winds up playing to divisiveness or judging others. Um, it reinforces our culture of being attached to material possessions and sense pleasures, since that's all that most people really know how to talk about. So um, if the conversation can never deepen, it's a way of holding each other at arm's length and really reinforcing this huge problem of loneliness and isolation and the privatizing of all of our real feelings and anxieties in our society. So in our inner work on this, we can look with, we can work with, are we, how are we with silence? How are you with kind of sitting out of conversations that really aren't, aren't uh, meaningful to you? You know, do you always feel like compelled to join in? This is why we meditate. We meditate to calm the nervous tension that often fuels a lot of this conversation and need to connect and chatter away. Um, I already mentioned appreciating uh, what we have here in the Sangha of people that you can talk to about something else. 
And then we need to trust opening up and learning to listen to what other people's deeper experience is because people aren't that skilled in talking. If you're going to ask somebody how they feel, you better be, you know, have some skill in, in hearing the answer <laughs> without escalating it into uh, something really difficult to really hear it without reactivity. So speech flows directly from our views and intentions. It causes a tremendous amount of harm if we're not practicing with mindfulness and wisdom. And it's a beautiful channel of connection and harmony and teaching and healing and compassion if, it's, if we can learn to do it skillfully. So those are the factors to bear in mind when you're looking at your speech. And now we would like to have a little breakout session. So why don't you get in groups of four? I'll tell you the question now since you might not be able to hear when you get into the group of four. There are two questions. You can sort of pick which one you mostly want to talk about. Um, and I think we'll do the method where we go around in circles. So just put in one thing in a couple sentences and then let somebody else put in something in a couple of sentences and go around several times and maybe something somebody else says will spark something you want to say. Okay, so we won't do long monologues, but just go round and round. So two things you might want to think about. When is it hard for you to speak the truth? Or when is it tempting for you to speak something that you know is not true? And Or maybe one of the other aspects of right speech are more challenging for you. So just bringing, just highlighting for you where are areas where these factors are challenging for you that you'd like to become more aware of in the month to come maybe by mentioning them today. Okay? And of course you're also welcome to practice right speech while you're doing this. And Liz will be talking more explicitly about this in the second half. But uh, that's the idea. So groups of four... Uh, you have until uh, two, you have about 20 minutes for this. So, am I audible? So we have an announcement, so do come back together before the break. We're going to uh, take a break until 2.25, but um, some people have expressed interest in pairing up in uh, or having Dharma buddies for contact through the month with one of your fellow students here, either by phone or in person. Um, so anybody who is interested in having a Dharma buddy with whom you can touch base more frequently, you know, and talk about how the practice is going to kind of keep yourself on track or just share some of the things you're learning, um, if you could find your way during the break towards, you know, the entrance to the library and just gather in that corner and maybe seek each other out and see who's available for being a buddy. So thank you. So enjoy yourselves and we'll ring the bell just before 225.